Welcome back, everyone. Oh, yeah, we're here. It's season five of Me, Myself, and Millie, a podcast that gives light and levity to infertility and different pathways to parenthood. I'm your hostess with the mostess, Millie Brooks. We are back. We are back just in time for the dreaded holiday season when everyone and their mother is asking you when you're going to be a mother or a father or a parent. However you identify, the holidays are tough when you're going through infertility, so as soon as a few interviews sort of presented themselves, I was like, okay, it's go time. Let's do this. Today's guest is probably somebody that you have seen in recent headlines. Um, It is attorney Adam Wolf, who is representing Daphna and Alexander Cardinale in the tragic case where an IVF clinic transferred a different embryo to the wrong recipient, thus creating a massive IVF mix-up fiasco horror story. He's here today to chat with us, but before we launch into that interview... If you aren't following the podcast on Instagram, jump on it, give us a follow at me, myself, Millie. And if you haven't given us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we would so appreciate it. All that love helps us reach more people and essentially helps folks feel not so alone. All right, and we are here with Adam Wolf. Adam, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It is great to be here. Thank you so much, Millie. Adam, did you know you were going to be an attorney with that kind of name? Hmm. Uh, no, I. Uh, there was a long period of time I didn't know I was going to be an attorney, um, <laughs> uh, and I uh, I had a, a, a very formative. Uh, experience in South Africa. I, I, I lived there for um, for a while during college. Um, and it sort of opened my eyes to the power, the importance, and the um, just the, the way that the law can change things in society. Um, and it always interested me um, from then on. So I went to law school. I practiced civil rights law for a while, um, and then started a practice, oh, about 10 years later. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. And I mean, looking at your bio a little bit, it looks like you did a small stint in Michigan, which is where I'm from. So tell tell us about that. Did you go to U of M? I did. I went, I went to law school at Michigan, um, three years in Ann Arbor, go blue. Yep. Did you go to Michigan as well? No, but I do have family members that work at U of M. Um, and then, but my parents went to MSU. So, I, you know, I, it's half and half over here. All right. I'm going to forgive you for that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I went to, um, I went to a, a small school on the East Coast called Amherst College uh, for my undergrad degree. And then I went to Michigan for law school. I, did what's called clerking for a couple of federal judges after that. Um, I taught for a little bit, uh, taught law school at UCLA and other places. Uh, and then I went to the ACLU's national legal department where I practiced for, oh gosh, probably seven, eight, nine years, something like that. Fabulous. Well, let's get into um, the topic today, um, which is, you know, for, I mean, 
let, let's start with fertility law. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the world of fertility law. Are we just talking about contractual law, but with special concerns related to genetic material? Like, break it down for us. That's actually a really difficult question. I mean, what is fertility law? And is there is there something called fertility law? Or is it really just a subset of contractual law or tort law? Um, you know, I, I think... That's, that's actually a very complicated question. Is it a subset of medical malpractice law um, in California and other places that have med mal statutes? The way I got involved, and I kind of like this, is that I was involved in a case that had nothing to do with fertility issues. Uh, my opposing counsel and I kind of took a shine to each other. And after our case was over, he had a client um, who had some of her eggs um, discarded without authorization. And he called me up and said, listen, I, I don't really do this work, um, but I'm wondering if you could handle it. And that ended up being my very first, uh, or that was my foray into um, fertility issues. Uh, and, you know, since then, my firm and I have represented hundreds of victims of misconduct at fertility centers. Uh, we have uh, hopefully helped a lot of people along the way and perhaps just as importantly, hopefully are continuing a conversation um, that A, destigmatizes um, fertility issues and B, opens up a conversation regarding the need for regulations of fertility clinics. Mm -hmm. And it looks like you started an embryo loss group at your practice. What does that look like? And maybe start with what a practice group in a law firm is. Sure. Um, so, you know, lots of law firms have different areas um, that they devote particular time and attention to. So, you know, there are some law firms that specialize in transactional issues. There are firms that help companies with bankruptcy issues. There are firms that work on civil rights matters. Um, on gender equality. Um, my firm has, among other things that we do, I mean, for instance, we, rep we represent retirees who have lost their retirement savings through the unscrupulous actions of their financial advisors. Or I continue to do some civil rights work, um, particularly at the Supreme Court and Court of Appeals levels. And then we have our fertility practice, among other practices. And what does that mean? I mean, it can it, it spans a fairly broad spectrum. We have represented hundreds of people who have lost their eggs or embryos when freezers malfunctioned at fertility centers. That happened at uh, Pacific Fertility Center in San Francisco. It happened at university hospitals in Cleveland, Ohio. It's happened elsewhere too. Uh, so that's one, one type of case that we have done. Another is just a one-off case of clinics losing people's exit embryos. It could be that they are dropped inadvertently on the floor. Oh, gosh. That image. I mean, that image of that just, you know, a beaker, like, just busting open on the floor. That is That is hard. It's incredibly hard. And, you know... It has, as you well know, you know, lifelong consequences um, uh, for the people involved. Um, it could be that a clinic, you know, is attempting to discard people's genetically abnormal 
embryos and really pulls the wrong lever so that it discards the genetically normal ones. Um, and, you know, with that one mistake, you know, it could be that people forever lose the ability to have children. Um, it, it, we've had cases where, you know, the wrong embryo is transferred to somebody. So a complete stranger's embryo is transferred. Um, or it could be that an embryo is created with the right egg, but from the sperm of a complete stranger. Um, we've had cases where doctors have inserted their own sperm into their patients as part of an IUI procedure, um, completely without authorization and consent. Um, so it, it, it's a fairly broad practice. Um, but part of what draws me, to, uh, there are two things that draw me to it. Um, one is it's incredibly important for our clients. I mean, in some ways, there is nothing more important, right? This is about, you know, the fabric of people's families. It's about our social structures at home. It's about the way that we envision what our lives look like, um, not only right now, but for decades and in some ways, generations into the future. Um, the second thing is from a, from a legal standpoint, I find it absolutely fascinating because in some ways we're writing on a blank slate. Um, there has not been a body of law that has developed over decades, like with most areas of law, um, where you could say, okay, you know, I, um, there's a playbook to abide by. There are, you know, there's basic case law and ground rules on what to follow. And this is, you know, I can look at your case and say, well, this is, you know, very likely to be, you know, damages between A and B. Um, you know, we have to be creative in terms of how we think through people's legal claims, um, because there have been very few cases like this, at least until we started doing this work, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. Um, and there is virtually no history of how juries um, will respond to the damages issues in these cases. Like, how do you place a number, which is effectively what a jury does, a monetary figure? How does somebody place a number on somebody's egg or embryo? You know, what is the emotional loss and how do we quantify that for somebody who can't have children or even the opportunity to have children as a result? What is the price that a clinic should have to pay for putting the embryo of a complete stranger into somebody so that they are effectively a forced, unknowing surrogate for somebody else? Mm, mm, I, I have chills running up and down my spine. I mean, this stuff is so real and so visceral. And I mean, you know, how common are like, I mean, obviously fertility um, medicine is becoming more and more popular because people are waiting longer to have children. Is Are you seeing an uptick in cases like this? Yeah, we are. Um, and it's really impossible to know how often these things happen because there are no virtually no reporting requirements. There are very few regulations. There's no database, whether publicly accessible or not, for these types of errors. Um, and so we've, we've had clients come to us and say, well, you know, our, our clinic put in an embryo, transferred an embryo to us that doesn't belong to us. How often does this happen? And the honest answer is we have no idea. Um, you know, the, the most common situations where people 
um, uncover that issue is when you have children born who are clearly of a different race from the mom and dad or from the two parents uh, and or from the one it's parent. you know there um if you're not expecting that well then it's fairly obvious um but how many times does this happen does somebody give birth to a child thinking that he or she is the genetic re- genetically related child to this person and you you know, they might go their whole lives, probably do go their whole lives without knowing that they're not genetically related. Um, right now, there are so few regulations um, in place, no public reporting requirements that we have no idea how often this happens. I mean, my m- listeners, if you could see my mouth right now, it's just on the floor. Like my jaw is on the floor. You're blowing my mind right now, Adam. Um You know, let's get into the, you know, regarding the IVF mix-up case between Daphna and Alexander Cardinale. What has it been like to work on such a high-profile case? Um, You know, I to me the biggest part of it is that it's a total, it's it's a total joy to work on something and devote my time and energy to something uh, that really matters to people, Um, and. You know, it's it's why I do this work. Um, I get great satisfaction out of that. Now, of course, I wish the Cardinalis weren't in this position. I wish they didn't need my services. Um, but if I'm going to, you know, spend my life working on something in the law, um, you know, I do derive great satisfaction out of working on something that truly matters to people. And so for me, the touchstone is, um, you know, how much does this matter to somebody and can I help? And, um, you know, I know it's clear to the Cardinales um, that this matters greatly. Nothing matters more. And I really hope that we can help. And um, so I don't know if you can specifically answer this, but here I am. I'm going to ask it. Who is actually liable in a case like this? The clinic or the third party lab or both? Because I'm very curious how IVF clinics are allowed to outsource patient tissue to third parties without having to ensure quality control during the entire process. Well, I think the last part of it um, really presumes the answer, which is that when the clinic gives somebody's eggs or embryo or sperm um, to a lab, um, they are assuming the clinic is assuming responsibility. Um, for what the lab does. And so when there are errors here that happen in a lab, um, both the clinic and the lab are responsible. Um, The lab is responsible for what it did. And the clinic too is responsible for what it did, which is to send Daphne and Alexander's embryo to a lab that screwed up. And so they take on that responsibility. Um, Now, to be clear, here we're talking about a clinic California Center for Reproductive Health, CCRH, that has had a history of very troubling allegations levied against it. Um, And so there's, um, I think, all the more reason that we need accountability in this case, because we need to make sure that this doesn't happen again. It doesn't happen again at CCRH, that it doesn't happen again with Dr. Moore, and that it doesn't happen anywhere again. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, next question. 
do we know at this point in time if the clinic used more of their embryos with the wrong recipient? No, we don't know that. We, we do not know right now um, how many times this has happened at CCRH and with Dr. Moore. Um, you know, we know that we now know that this has happened twice. That's at a minimum, right? CCRH gave Daphne and Alexander's embryo to another couple and gave another couple's embryo to Daphna. Um, we don't know how many other times this happened, and we may never know, right? I mean, this is, goes back to what I was saying before. We don't know how often this occurs because there are undoubtedly people who go through um, IVF who have, who have healthy children, and they may never know that the embryos that were transferred to them are the wrong person. Or the wrong, or from a different couple. Well, and also, you know, just talking to my, you know, my community online, a lot of my listeners, a lot of them said they wouldn't want to know. You know, some people would, and then others are like, "Nope, I don't think I could handle it." Right. Um, I I completely understand that. Um, I surely have no judgment on any of that. These are incredibly personal issues. You know, I got a. Um, I received a call um, just yesterday uh, from a couple who had read about um, Cardinale's case um, and called me up and said, uh, "This is happening to them right now. That they are pregnant and they just found out that their the embryo that was transferred to them is not genetically related to either of them." How were they able to find out? If did the clinic inform them of that? No, they were doing genetic testing um, while she was pregnant. And part of that genetic testing um, was matching up the DNA to um, both both partners um, of the couple. And it turned, I mean, they didn't think anything was wrong in this regard. This was just sort of normal screening. And they got the, you know, the shock of their lives um, when they found out that the child that was growing inside of the woman was not genetically related to either. I had no idea that the genetic testing um, that you do when you are pregnant can also reveal maternity, paternity, you know, genetically linked DNA. I had no idea. Yeah, it it is possible. And I'm not sure that all types of genetic tests that are done in utero um, can reveal that information, but the particular type that they had um, did reveal it. And and there are tests out there like that. Um, Back to the Daphna and Alexander Cardinale case. um, Did the other couple involved realize that there could have been a mistake? No, I think I, so I don't represent the other couple, um, but as I understand, as I understand it, um, the other couple did not contact the clinic um, to alert the clinic that anything um, was amiss uh, with their child or their birth. Um, it was only after the Cardinales alerted the clinic um, that the clinic went back and looked at the records and said, oh, yeah, sorry about that. We have uh, mixed up their embryos. Wow. Yeah. It, it then set in motion a very complicated and interesting legal issue of like, how do you, within the legal system, switch paternal rights or switch the babies, if you will, um, that the baby from couple two would become, you know, um, that Alexander and Daphna would have uh, parental rights and vice versa. 
Um, there's really no playbook for this kind of thing in our legal system. Um, you know, this is not the type of thing that, you know, was contemplated 200 mm -hmm. years ago and rules have developed around that. Um, you know, we're kind of trying to make this all up together as we go, um, trying to do it best for our clients, trying to do something that's equitable, trying to do something that is the least emotionally wrenching. Um, and, you know, the, part of the very interesting uh, aspect of being a lawyer for these types of cases is that you have to think about what is, you know, the best public policy, what makes sense for your clients, and how to fit that within existing legal doctrine. It's it, from a, a lawyer's perspective, it is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, we're both couples on the same page with the next steps and whatnot. Yes, they were. Um, both couples were on board with um, uh, were on board with this process. They saw each other semi regularly when they found out um, that you know that they had each other's babies. Um, and you know, they still, um, they still speak on some occasion, um, to this day, you know, they were placed in a highly unusual situation. Um, and I think to their great credit, they really have made the most of that. Um, it's incredibly traumatic for everybody involved, including the children. Uh, and you know, they have handled it, um, with deafness and aplomb, um, and are doing everything that they can. Let's drift into a hypothetical situation where in a similar scenario, you had two couples, but they were not on the same page about next steps. Say the couple that, you know, whose embryo was transferred was not in a place where they wanted to swap. Like, again, how do you, how do you navigate that? Yeah, I have been involved in situations like that. Um, it's incredibly difficult. Um, you know, that let's just say you have a client who wants, you know, the parental rights to a baby that was born through another person, and that person doesn't want to give up their child or the person they see as their child. It, 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 nobody wins in that scenario. It's just heartbreaking. Um, and, you know, some of my most emotionally challenging cases um, have been in situations like that. I, I just feel horrible for everybody involved. Now, I do want to take a step back for a minute, though. Um, and, you know, probably a lot of your um, listeners, a lot of your community have gone through um, uh, assisted reproductive technology or are thinking about doing it. And, you know, I do think it's important, even though, you know, I end up having to speak about these horrific situations um, to say that, I mean, I also believe that fertility clinics do incredible work. Um, they allow people um, to have babies when they might not be able to otherwise. Um, and that's an incredible thing. I mean, I am, I am the father of three wonderful children. Um, there is nothing that gives me greater joy in this world than being with my children, even when they drive me crazy. <laughs> And to think that fertility clinics get, you know, give people that opportunity um, is a miraculous thing. And so many fertility doctors and other, you know, professional staff, other staff at fertility clinics go into it for all the right reasons. Um, you know, what my, my, one of my best buddies from college has a fertility clinic. He does wonderful things with it. It's really great to see. Um, 
where the issues come up where your your community may have heard of my cases is when things go wrong. Um, and that is a very small minority of the time. Um, you know, the vast majority of the time, everything, you know, goes as it should. It's not to say that success is ever guaranteed with it, but you don't hear these horror stories. Um, unfortunately, mistakes do happen. Um, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, almost always it's inadvertent. It's very rarely intentional. But when those mistakes happen, they have lifelong, catastrophic, traumatic consequences um, on the people involved. And, you know, I think it's important to highlight those cases um, so that we understand how they happen, to try to make sure they don't happen again, and to set in place a system of supervision, uh, a regulatory framework to minimize the instances of it occurring. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you kind of touched upon this earlier, but um, how do you put a dollar amount on a life fetus embryo if someone wanted to sue a person or institution for this type of negligence? Hmm. It's incredibly challenging. Um, so, you know, before this past May, um, there, I don't think there had been a single occasion where a jury had ever rendered a verdict um, and an embryo disaster. Um, it was this past May um, in the Pacific Fertility cases where a jury was asked to, for the very first time, I think, um, figure out how much to compensate people um, for the loss of their eggs and embryos. Um, and at Pacific Fertility Center, through a, a, a tank made by Chart Industries, we had sued Chart. Um, the, the tank was not properly made. Um, it leaked liquid nitrogen, the uh, temperature rose, and the eggs and embryos in that tank were compromised. Um, what should the value be? How does a jury put a number on the losses that people had there? Um, and, you know, this is not like something that you could just replace, right? It's not like losing somebody's sofa and you say, okay, well, you know, you go out to... Uh, you go out to the store and, you know, a replacement sofa is $1,099 and that's what your damages are. Um, this is, you know, putting some, it's, it's far more squishy. Um, and for the five um, individuals whose cases were tried in that, in that wave of trials, um, the jury returned a verdict of $15 million. It wasn't precisely $3 million per person, but it averaged out to $3 million per person. Was that too high? Was that too low? Not really for me to say, um, but it's what the jury found, right? I mean, you go around and you ask people, which um, I weirdly do at times, of you know, like what should somebody be compensated for this kind of thing? And you know, there are some people who would say, you know, listen, um, this is a very 21st century problem. Um, I'm so sorry you went through this, but you know, what should your compensation be? I don't know. What did you spend on the services? And you know, maybe it should be one or two times that. There are some people who would say there are not enough commas and zeros in the world. Um, and, you know, it's, I think every, you know, I think as with so many things in our society, it just, dep it depends somewhat on what your experiences are in the world, right? I mean, have you yourself had trouble conceiving? Do you have children? Do you want children? Um, have you experienced emotional turmoil? What is your um, experience has been with doctors, right? I mean, like there are all these things that go into play. Um, do you have other children? Are you able to replicate the process? I mean, I'm not saying that this should, any of these factors should or should not be part of one's assessment, but 
But I think that's a really interesting question. Like, what are the inputs to figure out what a jury should return in a case like this? And all I know through my personal experience is that these that these issues create lifelong trauma. Um, and it, it, while it's incredibly difficult to put a number on these kind of things, and in some ways it's kind of gross to put a number on these mm-hmm. kind of things. That's what our legal system does. Um, and, you know, it's, I'll tell you, there is no amount of money in the world that I could be paid to give up my mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. And in the, you, you said the jury, you know, um, um, decided the 15 million number. That was in the Pacific Fertility Center when their machine, like, kaput. Is that right? When they lost a few embryos? Well, more than a few, unfortunately. Um, there were thousands of um, eggs and embryos in, oh. in the freezer disaster. Oh, gosh. What ended up happening was that there's, think of a, a freezer that holds eggs and embryos. It needs to be at a fairly precise temperature. I mean, extraordinarily cold. This is not like putting it in your household freezer. Um, and it's frozen through liquid nitrogen. Um, that liquid nitrogen re- needs to remain at a certain level. If the liquid nitrogen escapes, the temperature is going to rise. Um, and if it gets outside of a permissible um, temperature range, the eggs and embryos are not going to survive. Um, and so what happened at Pacific Fertility Center is that there was just a weld on the freezer um, that wasn't done properly. And liquid nitrogen escaped. Um, and, you know, it's like, you know, it's one thing if you, you know, I was trying to, I always try to think of what, what analogies there are here. You know, if like, you need, you know, you're supposed to keep wine at a certain temperature, right? Um, and if your wine, um, you know, if your wine is, is exposed to 120 degree heat, it might not be okay. Um, you know, if you leave, you know, chicken out on a counter um, and, you know, it's not in the fridge for some days, you're not going to be able to eat it, right? Um, here, eggs and embryos need to be at a precise temperature, but unlike wine or chicken, you can't replace this mm-hmm. stuff. It is literally irreplaceable, and the consequences are just life-changing when that happens. Mm-hmm. Going back to, again, you kind of touched upon this earlier, how often you have seen IVF mix-up cases happen. When you see it, is it with a certain type of clinic? Like, are there any patterns that you're like, oh, red flag? Um. A really, it's, it's a great question um, because I think the next question is, you know, for your audience, well, how do we pick the clinic that is less likely um, to have this type of issue? Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I have not been able to discern a pattern like that. Um, you know, there are different types of clinics. There are very large clinics that are part of, you know, these big conglomerates, you know, what I call big fertility. Um, There are the mom and pop fertility clinics. Um, There are places that have a bunch of locations, places that just have one location, places that are certified and places that are not certified. I have not been able to um, put a finger on what would make it more likely um, that a clinic would have these types of errors. all I really know is that these errors happen, they are preventable, and we don't have in place a 
supervisory or regulatory system to prevent them. What type of reform needs to happen so that we can put the necessary pieces in place to make sure that there's some regulation on this stuff? Um, yeah, also a really good question. Um, you know, there it is, it is shocking to me um, how few regulations there are of fertility clinics. Um, there are more regulations that pertain to one's uh, barbershop or nail salon than to a fertility clinic. Let, let that sink in for me. Um, the, you know, there are a number of federal and state regulatory bodies that could provide oversight and that seem to punt on these issues. Um, you know, so we've gone to other places to try to look at what regulatory regimes are in place and how it's worked. Um, so the UK, for instance, um, has among other, um, you know, has a fairly robust regulatory framework. Um, it requires, among other things, uh, random and unannounced visits of labs. It requires clinics to report when there are mistakes. It has established a database um, so that you can know how many mistakes occur and at what clinics. Um, there's a, um, um, a level of mistake, if you will, from one to five, right? With let's say five being the most egregious or most harmful. And clinics have to report those types of things to say, okay, last year we had one level five incident, three level four incidents, and 12 level twos or something, whatever. And then that is reported on a publicly accessible database so that customers, consumers, should be able to pick a clinic that has had the fewest of those. Presumably when that happens, it incentivizes clinics to not make those mistakes. Now let's compare what happens in the United States. Um, from what I just said, there are no random unannounced inspections of fertility clinics in their labs. There are uh, no public reporting requirements of mistakes. Instead, the requirements are that you send to the government your success rates. And so clinic might be able to say, okay, you know, 95% of our transfers resulted in a pregnancy. Well, that doesn't explain what happened in that other 5% of the time, because what we know is that, you know, transfers are not always successful through no fault of the clinic, right? But what we don't know is within that 5%, was it 0.01% or was it 100% of the time it was due to errors? We have no idea. Um, and so we have no conception of how often this happens. We have no um, random unannounced visits to make sure that clinics are um, in proper working order at all times of the day or night. There are no requirements that there be that there are continuously monitored alarms on the freezers of clinics. There's no good reason for that, right? I mean, I have an alarm on my house, mm, mm -hmm. right? If I don't set that alarm, I have no idea if there's an intruder, mm. right? Um, and so clinics should have to have an alarm and they should have to arm it. Now in both the Pacific Fertility and University Hospitals case, the freezers malfunctioned at night when nobody was there. And because there was no remote alarm that was on, nobody knew. That needs to change. Mm. I don't know if this is getting too into the weeds, but um, 
what types of legal documentation should people have in place with a clinic and storage facility for their embryos? Sort of legal documentation? Yeah, I guess maybe like erring on the side of how can we prevent this? I mean, listing all the things you did that the clinic can do, is there anything that the patient can do? You know, listen, I, I think there are certain things that a patient can do, um, but it's hard. I mean, you can, as a patient or a prospective patient, you could say to the clinic, um, listen, do you have an alarm on the freezer? And is that alarm monitored? Um, and not just a, in an alarm within the lab, but a remote alarm, right? Something that can alert a company um, when the alarm goes off and there's somebody who lives within X number of minutes to race to the lab to make sure everything's okay or to add more liquid nitrogen or do whatever we, one needs to do with the freezer, right? To make sure that there is a remote alarm that is actually armed at all times of the day and night. I think that's a perfectly fine thing to ask. And I hope you get an honest answer and that that answer is yes, of course we do that. Um, uh, I think you can, I think another thing would be to ask, you know, is there ever an instance where there are multiple embryos out of the freezer at one time? Mm, there it is. Because that's what I was going to ask. Like, how can you, yeah, like, again, referring back to the Cardinale case, like, how can you prevent mix-ups? Right. Um, and another example would be, you know, can you assure me that there are two sets of eyes on every specimen that comes out of the freezer um, through the entire time that it's out of the freezer? Um, so that you don't have, you know, some careless lab tech who is, you know, sort of looks up and is thinking about what movie he or she is going to see that night and kind of loses track of the egg or embryo. Um, who, you know, places it too close to the edge of, to the ledge of the table, you know, those types of things. Um, I think those are all questions that a patient can ask. Um, and I hope you get honest answers to it. It's not lost on me that it's hard to ask these questions though. Mm -hmm. um, because this is, these are facilities that you put an enormous amount of trust in and you don't want to make it seem, I get it from the customer's perspective. You don't want to make it seem like you're questioning their integrity or their quality. Um, but, you know, I guess I would submit that for with a reputable, upstanding clinic, they would look at those questions and say, you know what, these people really care about what happens here. Um, I'm not going to hold that against them. Um, and I think it's a perfectly reasonable questions, questions to ask. I also understand why it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. You've just, I mean, you've blown my mind. This This interview just feels like a blockbuster hit. I mean, I just, I, you have educated me in so many facets, Adam. Is there anything else that you feel is really important to add to the dialogue about, about fertility negligence, fertility um, malpractice? You know, I think, I think impressing upon the need for supervision and regulation is incredibly important. I think having these conversations is really important. I think, you know, continuing to destigmatize um, uh, artificial reproductive technology, um, IVF, other things, um, it's vital. 
Um, and I'm so glad that you are doing what you're doing. I'm so glad that you have, you know, this large group of loyal listeners. Um, if anybody has any questions, um, you know, about the process or what they're going through, or if they have legal claims, they should feel free to contact me or anybody else um, who, who works in this field. Um, and I really thank you so much for your time. Oh, absolutely, Adam. Thank you so much. This has been so um, enlightening, and I'm just so grateful for everything that you shared on the show today. Thank you so much, Millie. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bombs, and see you next week.